Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Simon, for the welcome. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank you for this new day of new mercies, new privileges, new opportunities, new responsibilities, and new battles. And we pray that in your kindness and power that you would take us into the treasures of your word for these few minutes and that you would cause the treasures to enter into our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may know that um, many years ago, Elton John married a lady in St. Mark's Darling Point in 1984. And the reception for his wedding was held on a mega yacht on Sydney Harbour. One of the people who missed the boarding to get to the yacht was a man called Michael Parkinson, who you may know from television. And Michael Parkinson persuaded a police boat to take him out. So everybody was on board this mega yacht and suddenly a police boat came towards them at great speed carrying Michael Parkinson. But the people on board assumed that this was a police raid and began to throw overboard all the substances that were designed to make it a great party. And then Michael Parkinson arrived with a big smile on his face and spent the whole evening as the most unpopular person in the whole gathering. And I tell you that partly to remind you that it's possible to make yourself unpopular very quickly and partly also to say that there is something worse than when the ship pours all it has into the sea. Can you imagine what it is? It's when the sea pours all that it has into the ship. And D.L. Moody, the great preacher of the 19th century, said once, the ship is made to enter the sea, but woe to you when the sea enters the ship. What we have in 2 Timothy 3 is that the world has entered the church. It was meant to be the church entering the world, but the world has entered the church. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 must now tell Timothy what to do. So in chapter 1, he calls on him to suffer gladly for Christ. In chapter 2, he calls on him to be patient in the ministry. And in chapter 3, he calls on him to serve so that the tide is turned back. And of course, by the grace of God, it is turned back. So I want to think about this chapter quite quickly with you under three headings. The first is the battle to be faced, first five verses. The second is the decision to be made, verses 6 to 13. And the third is the weapon to be used, 14 to 17. First of all, the battle to be, to be faced. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Know that in the last days, that's the present, it's the days between the resurrection and the return of Christ. Know that in the last days, he says, there will be fierce times. And he chooses the word fierce, which is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew 8 to describe the two demoniac men. So if you wanted to choose a word, an adjective, to describe the frightening aspect of the days, he chooses this, this very powerful word, fierce. Now my question to you is, where will we see this ferocity? Will we see the ferocity by looking over the seas into some of the corrupt nations of the world? 
will we see the ferocity by looking into the back streets of the big cities of the world? Will we see the ferocity by looking at uh, social media? Will we see the ferocity by looking into the violence, the dreadful violence in certain homes? And Paul's answer is, it's in the church. Calvin gets this right. He says in his commentary, note who Paul is talking about. Not outside enemies, but people who are known as church members. And the text makes this very clear because the vice list in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, is very different from a pagan vice list. A, a pagan vice list is like 1 Timothy 1 that talks about murderers and slave traders. But this is a very different vice list. And the giveaway is in what we might call the climax in verse 5, the low point, which is that this particular group has a form of godliness but denies the power. Now, we never look across to the corrupt nations of the world and say, you know what's really dreadful about them? They have a form of godliness, but they deny his power. We never look into the back streets of the city and say, you know what's terrible? They've got a form of godliness, but they deny the power. You know what's terrible about social media? A form of godliness, but they deny its power. You know what's terrible about domestic violence? A form of... We never talk like that. This is the church. This is the church. I confess to you that I don't really know how lukewarm the church is. And part of the reason for that is because I swim in the church. And I just don't really know how bad things have got. I do know that a lukewarm church makes God sick. But I don't really know how low it is. I do know that if I take up a book like uh, George Whitfield's Journals, which I recommend to you sometime, that you will read a temperature there, a passion, a godliness, which is almost foreign territory from today. And I also know that there's a great difference between the behaviour of the private... Sorry, there is not a great difference between the behaviour of private Christians and the behaviour of private non-Christians. One of the Barna reports says this, when thousands of born-again believers were asked to anonymously list their activities of the past 30 days, they were as likely as non-Christians to have visited a pornographic website, taken what did not belong to them, fight or abuse someone, they consumed enough alcohol to be legally drunk, to have said something that was patently untrue, to have planned and executed revenge, or to have spoken critically behind another person's back. And the report goes on to say, among the young non-Christians surveyed, 85% said they knew a Christian, 15% said they knew a Christian whose life was different from their own. And I don't say this to depress you, friends. I say this to impress upon you that the world has invaded the church. No wonder we're not invading the world. But there is some tremendous help here in 2 Timothy 3 because these early verses are describing a perverted kind of love which God is able to replace with a very wonderful love. So in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see that even in the church, there can be a great influx of self-love and also money-love. 
In verse 4, even in the church, there can be pleasure love and not God love. Four references to love in these verses, a perverted love. Now, we could easily pin these four on the Australian country that we live in. We could easily say, this is a great description of Australia. Self-love, money love, pleasure love, no God love. But Paul is talking about the church. I noticed, incidentally, at uh, Town Hall Station, there's a very large Powerball billboard, and the tagline for Powerball now is, play by your own rules. It's just a classic collection of these four perverted loves. Self, money, pleasure, no God. Well, my friends, what would happen if the world began to preach these four, that is self-love, money love, pleasure love, and no God love? What would happen if the world began to preach these really well, better than we preach? Would it be possible that the church would begin to swallow the better communication? And of course the answer is yes. That's what Paul is warning against. And when the four of these get into the church, then you get the rest of the list in the vice list. You get the boasting, the pride, the ingratitude, the unholiness, the lack of forgiveness, and the slander. And these things specially flourish where the truth of God is not present and the love of God is not present. Now maybe, dear friends, you will find yourself ministering right now in a place where there is very little truth and very little love. You may find yourself um, ministering in a place where there is the form of Christianity but not the life of Christianity. You know, there's the look of a church stuff going on. There's the language of the church going on. There's even perhaps in your context the liturgy of the church stuff going on. But there's not the life. And that's why these verses are describing the battle. Everything is upside down. The top of the list in chapter 3, verse 2, self-love. The bottom of the list, no God love. And it's the beauty and the brilliance of God to come and turn everything right way round. He's the one who can fix this. There is a love that can change everything. We know about this from our doctrine because we know verses like Romans chapter 5, verse 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it is also an experience to be experienced. And there's nothing like being in a one-to-one ministry or a small group ministry or a Sunday school ministry or a youth ministry or a congregation ministry and seeing the truth and the love of God begin to transform people. There's nothing like it. Do you think God could be interested in helping us? Of course he could. One of the ladies in the church where I worked uh, for a long time um, had a team of people and they would go into schools and they would talk about standing up against the very anti-Christian messages that were coming at them. And they decided that they would go to a particular school and as a way of demonstrating grace that they would provide lunch for every one of the 1,200 pupils. So she went to a very wealthy CEO and said, I'm just blatantly asking you for a favor. I'm wondering if you will buy for these 1,200 pupils, 1,200 apples. 
Now, she was thinking crunchy apples. He was thinking computer apples. <laughs> and he thought for a few seconds and he said, you're asking a lot, but I will do it. <laughs> now, is that not a remarkable example of somebody who's got the resources and the willingness to do something big, wonderful? And God is the ultimate example of this. That's the battle. Secondly, the decision to be made, verses 6 to 13. The ministry in this battle is not just being clever and knowing things. That will not be enough. You must see self-love go as much as it can, and you must see the love of God come as much as you can. And in these verses, chapter 3, 6 to 13, they're very unusual verses Paul sets out two kinds of ministry, what I would simply call self-serving ministry or self-sacrificing ministry. And my friends, you must decide which of those you're going to exercise because it is utterly natural for us to exercise self-serving ministry. But by the grace of God, we are to exercise self-sacrificing. You see in chapter 3, verse 6, the self-serving person is doing their ministry to get... Well, what a natural thing that is. It's just, we're just shot through with this, aren't we? How could I benefit? How could I benefit? And who is easier to abuse than the sweetest people in the church? That's why these verses are not an insult to women. They are a reminder that often the kindest people in the church can be the women, and especially those who are not quite clear on the gospel, they're not yet free, they're not yet rejoicing, but they're very susceptible to spiritual abuse. You think of the women who watch uh, Christian television and get very little gospel, but are very quick to send in their money. It's all upside down. Or you think of the people around the world who right now are beating themselves up trying to get into God's good books with good works theology around the churches of the world. And the worldly church, of course, is going to be a pushover for the self-serving professional Christian. And Paul uses the example of the professionals in Moses' day who were magicians, tricksters, pretenders, but deep down, of course, serving themselves. Now, as I say, we're deeply infected with our sins and ourself. Who's going to help us? And the answer is, it's going to be the invading love of God. Not just Jesus having invaded the world, that's crucial, but also the Holy Spirit invading the heart of the servant. That's absolutely essential. Jim Packer uses an illustration of the human heart being like an absolutely disgusting swamp. And into the swamp comes the grace of God. And he says, and the grace of God goes like chlorine to the bottom of the swamp and begins to transform everything, making it clean. And that's the very wonderful truth of the gospel. And so we can ask God to change us, to change our motives as we serve, to change our reasons, to change our inducements. And he, of course, is able and willing to help us. Now, Paul illustrates this kind of ministry with his own ministry in verses 10 to 13. I don't think he's boasting. He attributes everything to Jesus. But he says this is what a self-sacrificing ministry looks like. It's one, faithful. Two, suffers. 
faithful to the people, faithful to the teaching, verse 10, suffering from people, and suffering because of the teaching, verse 11. Well, that sounds like a terrible choice for Timothy to make, doesn't it? Timothy, do you want to go down this path where you serve yourself? And he thinks no. Do you want to go down this path where you get beaten up? And he thinks no. It seems like a terrible choice. But I want to remind you that when God graciously puts into us his love and truth, they find a way of getting out of us. And when God puts us into difficulties, he finds a way of getting us out of them. And Stott says, John Stott says in his commentary on 2 Timothy, here are the two objective tests of a true servant, faithfulness and suffering. Stott also says, have you noticed how many heresies rise and fade away while the truth continues to march on? So, dear friends, ask yourself as you serve him to give you a big heart for people. Say to him something like this, Lord, you came to serve. I'm so thankful you came to serve me. And um, by nature, I'm keen to serve myself, but I'm asking that you will work in me a serving, self-sacrificing ministry. And he will help us. The third thing is the weapon to be used, verses 14 to 17. I'm going to say that it's the scriptures, verse 15, and I don't want you to be bored by that. Just because you hear it every 10 minutes at college. Don't be bored by this. Remember what I've said to you so far. We need to see that the church is awash with error and awash with evil. We need to rejoice that there is a love which comes from God, which revolutionizes people. We need to seek his help in order to pursue a ministry that is marked by his love in our hearts. What weapon will we use? Well, it's going to be the word of God. The same word which made the world and sustains the world and made the church and sustains the world is the weapon that he puts into our hands to do his work of making the church turn the tide back from the world. I uh, came into college a long time ago, 1876, I think it was, <laughs> and I lived in 20 Little Queen Street, just down here on the corner. My next-door neighbour was in fourth year, and uh, some of the staff will know who this was, but uh, he was the, probably one of the brightest guys who's ever been through Moore College. I remember saying to him on one occasion, just a passing conversation as we entered our front doors, I've got to give a talk, I uh, know I've got to write an essay on the speeches of Acts. Do you have any wisdom? And he got a little piece of paper out of his pocket and his pen, and on the wall of his house he wrote four articles in various magazines, putting not just the article and the magazine and the magazine number, but sometimes the pages beside the magazine number. And then he wrote down four books, and it turned out that one of them was giving me the original views of the speeches of Acts, the latest views, the most right-wing views, and the most left-wing views. And he just did it on a piece of paper, and he wasn't doing the essay. <laughs> so he's a clever man. And when the time came to give his fourth-year farewell sermon, he decided to speak on justification by faith. And it was a brilliant sermon. It was a brilliantly clear sermon, but we just squirmed in our seats because we had heard this again and again and again. 
And he finished his sermon like this, and I've never forgotten. He said, justification by faith is the ground of your ministry. It's the ground of your Christian life. It's the ground of your future. If it bores you, check your hearts. And then he walked out of the pulpit. I never forgot that. I'd like to say something similar to you about the Word of God. Never get bored by the Word of God. The Scriptures are the weapon which God will use to turn the tide from worldly to godly. Whether you're dealing with a Sunday school class or a youth group or a congregation or whatever it is, the Scriptures are the weapon that change people's minds, hearts, directions, lives, marriages, families, priorities, values. It's the Scriptures. And Paul has only one command <coughs> Excuse me. in these verses, in 3.14 to 17, and the one command is continue. Continue. Keep going. Don't give up. He says in verse 14, you learned the scriptures in infancy, you became convinced of them, they've made you wise for salvation, they'll equip you for every good work, keep going with the scriptures, right to the end, right to the end. You see, we might lift these verses um, 16, 17 out of context and give a very good talk on inspiration or the uses of scripture, but I want you to see that they come in a context and the context is there's a battle to be fought. There's a decision to be made of what, what sort of ministry you'll have. And there is a weapon to be used. Luther said, Martin Luther said, the gospel ministry is the greatest of all. It is the office that lays the foundation for all other offices. And because I'm now uh, getting old, I can tell you that I have watched my seniors continue in the word ministry and change the church and change the world. And I've watched many of my peers continue in a word ministry and change the church and change the world by the grace of God. And I've seen a church affected myself by the word of God and the love of God. So be aware of the battle. The sea has come into the ship. Be filled with the love of God. Give yourself to a self-sacrificing ministry. Be sure that he has given you the best weapon you could possibly need. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You can count on him to have given you the weapon you need for the work. And it's the word of God. And again from Luther, don't lose courage, but continue in the office assigned to you by God and let him worry about the success of the word. Or as Paul says in chapter 4 of this same letter, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that although there is a great deal of sea in the ship, that you are full of grace, full of truth, full of power, full of love. We pray that you would fill us with these things, that we might serve you with zeal, and that we might take the weapon that you've given, and that it might be effective to your praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.